This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to have an interesting chat, as we always have interesting chats, with Stephen J. Harper, our resident Trump expert. And we did receive a nice letter from a longtime listener who commented favorably on listening to Stephen J. Harper. And yes, Seth, in the future we will try and address the issues that you brought up about the emails. And I would note that uh, I agree, James Banford would be a great guest for Radio Parallax. I've been reading Bamford's books for decades, and um, he just recently friended me on Facebook, so there's hope. Thanks for listening and contributing. We start out today's program noting that, um, that your host has to admit that sometimes he's dead wrong. Aww. This, of course, comes as no surprise to Mr. McMillan. In fact, as mentioned in this program on numerous occasions, we had a bet gone as to whether Donald Trump would face the law by the end of the month of March. And what do you know? With a couple days to go, it appears the long arm of the law reached out and tapped him on the shoulder. Now, technically, he didn't face the music until until this month in, in April, but I'm going to give it to him anyway, because then Mr. Miller needs that $100 to himself make some hush money payments. I'm going to edit that out. Yeah, go ahead. I will say on my behalf that we bet on will he be indicted before the end of the month, and he was. Well, the jury voted to indict. I don't think the proceedings took place till now. Oh, it doesn't matter. It's your money. Well, Although we do have a double or nothing going, don't we? Yes, we do. It goes to double if any of these other jurisdictions decide to jump in and also pile on with an indictment, which, frankly, would be a bet I hope to lose. And when it comes to expertise like this, I, I think of, of two things. First, when I entered medical school, they took us aside and told us that 20% of what they were teaching us was wrong. They were pretty confident of that based on the history of medicine. But the bad news was they weren't able to tell us which parts. At this juncture, I think we need to jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, which frankly we, we've neglected for a while on this show. Anyway, it was a good week, I guess last week, for art appreciation with the news that the principal of a Christian charter school in Florida has been forced to resign after showing a photo of Michelangelo's David to sixth grade students. Officials with Tallahassee Classical School say Hope Karaskia should have warned parents in writing that their children would be exposed to male nudity. School board chair Barney Bishop III said, parental rights trump everything else. Well, people have tried to make the case for that. As for us, we hope that Barney Bishop III visits Florence sometime soon. Well, Mr. Miller just informs me that the, that the city of Florence, Italy, invited the teacher over to, to take a gander at the, uh, the original. <laughs> 
And it was a bad week recently, we'd have to say, for, I guess, what we would describe as the American legal system. Isn't that every week? Seems like it. Anyway, apparently an Illinois man has filed a class action lawsuit against Buffalo Wild Wings because its so-called boneless wings are breast meat, not wings. Yes, apparently Eamon Halim's suit seeks punitive damages for what he calls a clear-cut case of false advertising. The restaurant chain, to its credit, mocked Halim's complaint by noting in a tweet that, well... Our buffalo wings are 0% buffalo. And it was surely an ugly week recently for the American news media with the news that there is a daily newspaper in Salinas, California, which now employs zero reporters or editors. Founded in 1871, the Salinas Californian had 35 journalists as recently as 1999. But today, it only reprints articles from USA Today and other Gannett newspapers with no local reporting. Gannett acknowledged staffing challenges in certain newsrooms, but said it was developing strategies to support these markets. Yeah, I guess they're going to try. But uh, you know what the past tense of try is. All right, let's, let's do another round, shall we? And um, a couple weeks ago was a good week. Actually... It's more than a couple weeks ago. It's more like a few months ago, maybe a few years ago, that it was a good take-your-pick time frame for laying low with the news that Liu Mofu was arrested in China. He robbed a gas station of $24 in 2009 and evaded police for the next 14 years. He did so by living alone in a remote cave. Liu, now in his 50s, missed his father's funeral and his son's wedding, which he says he regrets. And it was a bad week recently for West Virginia, which I know is sometimes referred to as America's child bride breadbasket, with the news that lawmakers there have rejected a ban on child marriage. The bill would have raised the age of consent to 18 in West Virginia. Currently, minors can marry at 16 with parental consent or even younger with a judge's waiver. Republicans said teenagers marrying was not unusual in West Virginia. And quoted State Senator Mike Stewart as saying, his own mother married at 16, and six months later, I came along. Having my baby, you're a woman in love, and I love what's going through you. And finally, it was an ugly week, I'd have to say, for all of us, with the news from the Washington Post, that... About 16 million Americans, that's about 1 in 20 adults, own at least one AR-15 assault rifle. Two-thirds of those in existence have been manufactured since the Sandy Hook mass shooting, and they've generated $11 billion in sales. Ten of the 17 deadliest shootings in the country since 2012, what do you know it, have involved AR-15s. Why it is they continue to allow these weapons of war to be sold along with clips that you can put, I don't know, what, 40, 80 rounds in it? The only purpose of such an arrangement is to kill a large number of people in a short period of time. And as addendum to this story, which is actually unbelievable, is that manufacturers are now offering a 22 caliber version of it called the JR-15, which is being marketed to kids. You just can't make this stuff up. 
part, we've got some frivolous stuff and we got some serious stuff. I don't know which one to do first. But I think I'll go with serious for starters and then lighten things up toward the end. I can tell you one frivolity we're not going to get into today is further bagging on everything, everywhere, all at once. A movie which yours truly disliked immensely. We'll probably save some commentary on that for a future show that comes midweek. We're almost certain to do one of those. Uh, I probably should mention that Radio Parallax does have currently a plan to gear down over the summer. We will probably not be producing shows on a weekly basis, but rather on a more intermittent basis, meaning like maybe two a month. With the Guy Teresi's help, we're going to make arrangements for you listeners on KDVS, so stay tuned for further instruction. You know, the guy we need to get on this show is James Risen. He's always been good in interviews that I've seen him on, and his, his book, State of War, just came to me about half hour ago. Writing in The Intercept, he had some pithy things to say about the anti-war vote that came, well, a little bit late, I guess you'd say. To quote from Mr. Risen, members of the United States Senate are patting themselves on the back. They officially just voted to end the war in Iraq. Sort of. The Senate voted last Wednesday to repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force for the 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq, and the legislation is being praised by its supporters in the Senate as a reassertion of the war-making powers of Congress. This vote shows that Congress is prepared to call back our constitutional role in deciding how and when a nation goes to war, said Senator Bob Menendez, New Jersey Democrat, who chairs the Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Tim Kaine, Virginia Democrat, and Republican Todd Young of Indiana argued that the vote sent a signal that the American people are still in charge when it comes to deciding when to go to war. Right. Notes risen, but the Senate vote came 20 years too late. It was as if Congress had voted to end the Vietnam War in the 1990s. It was a symbolic vote, not an act of courage. It was a historical artifact, like endorsing a new monument honoring the war's dead. It came just days after the 20th anniversary of the U.S. invasion, and even if passed by the House and sounded, signed into law by President Joe Biden, it will have no impact on any outgoing U.S. military operations in Iraq or anywhere else. American combat operations ended in Iraq years ago, and there's now only about 2,500 U.S. military personnel in the country acting as trainers and advisors to Iraqi forces. As if to underscore the abstract nature of Wednesday's vote, the Senate threw in a repeal of the authorization for the 1991 Persian Gulf War for good measure. Noted Risen, the vote was so meaningless that it was not really a reassertion of Congress's constitutional authority over matters of war and peace. The congressional battle over the Iraq War that really mattered took place 16 years ago in 2007 when the debate in the Senate involved a young Democratic senator from Illinois named Barack Obama and the veteran chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Joe Biden. That congressional battle had truly high stakes, and it went very badly for the war's opponents. They failed to end the war, and the conflict raged on for years. Notes risen, following the September 11th attacks on New York and Washington, the Bush administration ginned up support for going to war by spreading a White House-sanctioned conspiracy theory that Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was behind the 9-11 attacks. They followed that up, with misleading claims that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. In October 2002, Congress passed the authorization for the use of military force with significant bipartisan support, and George W. Bush ordered the invasion of Iraq by March 2003. 
The war turned so grim and bloody that by 2006, midterm elections became a referendum on Iraq. The Democrats won control of both houses, leading to a showdown beginning in early 2007 between Bush and the Democratic-controlled Congress over Iraq. The Democrats wanted the U.S. to begin withdrawing troops. Bush wanted to escalate the war and wanted Congress to pay for it. As the months passed, Democratic leaders struggled with how to force Bush to set a timetable for withdrawal without looking like they were withholding funds needed to support American troops in the field. I have to stop right there in Risen's narrative and just say that is such a con game they play. I remember the same argument being made in Vietnam. Well, we can't cut these guys off. We, <laughs> they need our support. Be like abandoning people that are floating around in a lifeboat. He quotes Representative Ike Skelton, a Missouri Democrat, as saying, we're not about to cut off funding for troops. He was chair of the House Armed Services Committee. That would be injurious to our troops and their families. Risen notes that in February of 07, Obama announced he was running for president, and his views on Iraq at that time were clearly influenced by his fledgling campaign. He'd been an early opponent of the war, which would prove to be an advantage in the Democratic primaries. Yet he was also trying to carefully calibrate his language and his votes so as to avoid any political damage that would come from not appearing to support U.S. troops. When he was asked at the time if he could find a way to support soldiers while not paying for Bush's escalation, he said, that's what I'm trying to figure out. My understanding so far is we can do it constitutionally, but as a practical matter, if the president chooses to go ahead with the deployment and simply runs out of money halfway through, then those troops that are already there will then start getting to a game of chicken. That's a big dilemma I'm trying to figure out what mechanisms we can use to stop what I'm convinced is the wrong policy without shortchanging the young men and women who have already been deployed. Obama's comments at the time provided an early sign of his excessively cautious approach to national security as president. Biden, then the influential chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, dismissed the idea of only paying for some operations. We have a standing army with a budget of hundreds of billions. You can't go in and, like a tinker toy, play around, say you can't spend money on this piece and that piece. Biden's comments were probably a rebuke to Obama, a presidential rival at the time. Biden announced he was running for president in January, just before Obama. In the end, Congress backed down. Bush vetoed Democratic-backed legislation that would have set a deadline for the start of troop withdrawals, and the Democrats lacked the votes to override the veto. Bush won the game of chicken that Obama had warned about. With money for the war about to dry, Congress approved another $100 billion in Iraq war funding. Bush signed that bill in May 2007. Said Risen, Congress never again came as close to ending the war in Iraq on its own. Until last Wednesday. And in a thoroughly disturbing addendum to the piece we talked about a couple years back about how Exxon did studies back in the early 80s and knew we would be in this terrible fix regarding global warming right about now. Well, what do you know? They weren't the only ones peering into the future and seeing the bad things that are about to happen. Shell Oil did too. An investigative piece by Jessica Corbett notes that despite internal awareness Shell systematically downplayed the problem to the public, instead promoting more and more fossil fuel use despite the dangers. Now, five decades later, Shell continues to dawdle and delay. Notes the piece, reporting on a cache of documents published over the weekend, shows that Shell knew about the impact of fossil fuels even earlier than previously revealed, potentially bolstering legal efforts to hold big oil accountable for the global climate emergency. 
The reporting from Desmog and Follow the Money is based on Dirty Pearls, Exposing Shell's Hidden Legacy of Climate Change Accountability, 1970 to 1990, a project for which researcher Vatan Hürzer compiled 201 books, correspondence documents, scholarship, and other materials. Following explosive revelations about what ExxonMobil knew about fossil fuels driving global heating, investigations in 2017 and 2018 uncovered that Shell's scientists privately warned about the impact of its products in the 1980s. Faced with the global oil crisis, rather than using its climate information to publicly sound the alarm and shift to cleaner practices, the company focused instead on a non-sustainable profit model, launching Shell Coal International in 1974 in the wake of the Arab oil embargo. The next year, in 1975, a study Shell was involved with warned that increases in the CO2 content of the atmosphere could lead to the so-called greenhouse effect, which would be enough to induce major climactic changes. Three years later, 1978, another report warned that the continued burning of fossil fuels would lead to a manifold increase in the atmospheric CO2 concentration. And a confidential study in 1989 stated that if global temperatures rose more than 1.5 Celsius, the target of the Paris climate agreements that came decades later, then the potential refugee problem could be unprecedented. Africans would push into Europe. Chinese into the Soviet Union, Latins in the United States, Indonesians into Australia, boundaries would count for little. Overwhelmed by the numbers, conflicts would abound, civilization would prove a fragile thing. So, ladies and gentlemen, they knew, and they knew a long time ago, they just decided that wasn't the way to make money, it just didn't fit their business model. The piece concludes by saying that despite internal awareness, the company systematically downplayed their problem to the public, instead promoting more and more fossil fuel use despite the dangers. Of course, that's if you believe that this global warming thing is really taking place. Lots of folks don't, you know. Some of them don't believe in evolution. Some of them think the earth is flat. That's what it says in the Bible. But uh, don't let me digress. The Atlantic published a piece here that has me uh, irked. A piece by Alex Tremboth and Vijay Ramachandran titled, The Malthusians Are Back. Now let me see if I just can't uh, quote from this snotty-nosed piece. Scolding regular people for contributing to climate change is out of fashion, but scolding people for making new people is apparently totally fine. Many climate activists say the worst thing an individual can do from an emissions perspective is to have kids. The climate advocacy group Project Drawdown lists family planning and education, which are intended to lower fertility rates as leading solutions to global warming. Boy, that sounds like a lot of baloney, doesn't it? Naomi Oreskes, a Harvard historian and celebrated climate researcher, published an op-ed in Scientific American this month titled, Eight Billion People in the World is a Crisis, Not an Achievement. Well, the guys writing this piece don't agree with this one minute. They said, this at the bottom is a very old idea that can be traced back to the 19th century cleric Thomas Malthus. It is also analytically unsound and morally objectionable. Critics of overpopulation down the ages have had a nasty habit of treating people less as individuals with value and agency than as sentient locusts. Anyway, they go on to trash Paul Ehrlich and denounce the fact that he recently appeared on 60 Minutes. They make him out to be some kind of misanthropist because back when he wrote The Population Bomb, he described how overwhelming it was to visit New Delhi. And, quoting Ehrlich, 
See people eating, people washing, people sleeping, people visiting, arguing and screaming, people thrusting their hands to the taxi windows, begging, people defecating and urinating, people clinging, clinging to buses, people hurting animals, people, 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 people. Well, it sounds like Ehrlich was a bit overwhelmed by his experiences in India, but if you go to India, dear listener, I think you may find yourself a little bit overwhelmed yourself. Ehrlich was there in the 60s. Mr. McMillan and I have been there more recently. Not together. I would point out that when you're walking around a back alley in India, I'm thinking of a place in Calcutta, I walked down a, a street, and there was a giant pool of urine where people just went down the alley and took a leak. Lots of people, lots of leaks. It's funny, Mr. Miller, a relative of yours once pointed out to me that if you're walking around India and you spot a green area, you think, oh, that'd be nice to go over there and visit the green area. Well, the green area will be piled with human feces. And I can verify that, well, that's a real observation. And I think I'll refrain from telling you about a horrifying moment I had wading into the waves on the west coast of India. Let's just say that one can make the case that the earth is suffering from too many people, no matter what these clowns have to say about it. But I got curious, so I looked up the institute that they work for. Both of these guys uh, are employed by the Breakthrough Institute. According to Wikipedia, the Breakthrough Institute is an environmental research center located in Oakland, California. It's aligned with the eco-modernist philosophy. The institute advocates for an embrace of modernization, comma, technical development, comma, and increasing U.S. economic growth usually through a combination of nuclear power and urbanization. Since its inception, notes the piece, environmental scientists and academics have criticized breakthroughs environmental positions. The Institute apparently believes that economic growth is how we're going to uh, fix all of our environmental problems. And if you believe that, or if you can believe that, I've got a park in Calcutta I'd like to walk you through. Yeah, and, and, and bring your waiters when we go. Anyway, apparently they get a lot of support from, uh, like, agribusiness interests and people that do processed food, and one journalist alleged the Breakthrough Institute is an example of a quasi-lobbying organization which does not adequately disclose its funding. Climate scientist Michael Mann questions the motives of the Breakthrough Institute. According to Mann, the self-declared mission of the BTI is to look for a breakthrough to solve the climate problem. However, Mann states that basically the BTI appears to be opposed to anything, be it a price on carbon or incentives for renewable energy, that would have a meaningful impact. He notes that the Institute remains curiously preoccupied with opposing advocates for meaningful climate action and is coincidentally linked to natural gas interests. Oh, what a surprise. He criticizes the BTI for advocating continued exploitation of fossil fuels. That's a theme we're going to return to in the future on this program, how it is that um, technologic solutions are not going to save us. Nuclear power might have, but it takes about a 20-year lag to get that up and running. So it doesn't look good right now. The Economist had a piece about the global rice crisis, which I was quite unaware of. It turns out that uh, rice production has leveled off around the world. That supposed green revolution, which the people at the Breakthrough Institute laud. And admittedly, Norman Barlog won a Nobel Prize for increasing yields on crops, but that was then. The Economist notes that global rice demands in Africa as well as Asia are soaring. Yields are stagnating. Land, water, and labor that rice production requires are becoming scarcer. And climate change is a graver threat. And by the way, rice fields produce quite a bit of methane, which is 20 times more efficient at global warming than CO2. 
But if that's enough worry, how about the fact that global freshwater demand will outstrip supply by 40%, 40% by 2030. 2030 is seven years away. That's according to experts. Writing in The Guardian, Fiona Harvey, environmental editor, notes that governments must urgently stop subsidizing the extraction and overuse of water through misdirected agricultural subsidies. And industries from mining to manufacturing must be made to overhaul their wasteful practices. No, she didn't mention California, but when you talk about how we use water in this state, wow, wow. We grow monsoon crops out in the desert, and we build giant housing tracks out in the desert. Neither which really ought to be there. And there's much more to say about that, but I'm going to stop. All right, here's a, a comedy relief item from California's homeless crisis. According to the Bay Area News Group, a Berkeley resident has been arrested and charged with a felony for allegedly walking into a local Episcopal church, drinking the altar wine, and helping himself to some of the clerical robes on his way out the door. The suspect, a 34-year-old unsheltered man who was living in Berkeley, was linked to the crime based on eyewitness accounts and a DNA test on the unfinished bottle of altar wine. The authorities allege that last November 6th, an employee at the St. Clement's Episcopal Church on Claremont Avenue in Berkeley noticed the man leaving the church dressed in a red cassock and white kata. The man claimed he'd been given the robes and walked off. <laughs> Upon further investigation, the employee discovered a half-empty bottle of altar wine still inside the church. It turned out the suspect was well-known to police and neighbors on Upper Claremont Avenue. Well, let's, let's hope he cleans up. Mr. Willen's take-home on the item is if you're going to start the altar wine, you know, finish the bottle, then take the evidence with you. And we were quite enticed by the story that a wax museum in Krakow, Poland, is getting attention for all of the wrong reasons. Apparently, its likenesses of Prince William and Kate Middleton are so bad, they become the subject of worldwide mockery. A TikTok video branding the Krakow Wax Museum as the worst wax museum in Poland has garnered nearly 2 million views. Reportedly, the fake royals caused at least one child to burst into tears, and one online commentator said the grimacing prince looks like Hugh Grant after 20 Jägermeisters. Hugh Grant after 20 Jäger bombs. And how about if we close this segment with uh, three different memes, which I stumbled upon. The first features former Radio Parallax guest Neil deGrasse Tyson with the statement, you can't use reason to convince anyone out of an argument that they didn't use reason to get into. Hard to argue with that. Here's one from Ernest Hemingway, whom I'm not a huge fan of, but I like this line. He said, there's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow men. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. That's a nice sentiment. And the final item features two pictures of Robert Downey Jr. In the first one, he's expressing shock. But in the second one, he looks quite relieved. The caption is, when your girlfriend leaves a breakup note on your boat, this isn't working. But you start your boat up and it's working fine. Let's take a short break. Listen to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for Stephen J. Harper. Stephen J. Harper.